0: Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, if you've been with us for a little while, you know that at the beginning of this year, we started a Bible reading plan. We are now two weeks into it, and some of you, I'm guessing, are probably already ready to quit because we're in Job, and it is just over and over and over. All it is is just his friends giving him bad advice, and Job's like, no, you don't really understand. It's like this, but then it's not really like that. If you persevered up to today, there is a big payoff, right? So my encouragement to you is don't stop, right? If you haven't done the readings this morning, don't stop because today, God answers, God shows up and speaks today, and you do not want to miss what he has to say about the situation. But I say that because as we're starting this year with Bible reading, I don't want you to not just stop. I want you to, this morning specifically, consider your Bible reading routine. Now, two weeks into this, some of you may have already started picking up on this. If you're a veteran in church, you understand the importance of this. But there are a couple things you need to consider when it comes to your Bible reading routine. First of all, you have to consider when you're going to do it. Because if you don't actually pencil it into, into your calendar, this is going to be like one of those um, New Year's resolutions that by February 1st, you're going to forget about. But then you'll pick up again on January 1st of next year. You have to be diligent about when you're going to do it, because if you don't schedule a time that you're going to do it, it will become one of those things that you'll just get to and you'll never get to. So either pick in the morning or pick in the evening. Let it be the first thing you do. When you wake up in the morning and you open your eyes, don't grab your phone and see what your friends are doing on Facebook. Grab the Word of God and let the first thing that you put your face in in the morning be the Word. Or if you're one of those college students, you can barely make it to class on time, and your prime time for studying the Word is right before you go to bed, so you just want to marinate it as you sleep, read it as the last thing you go to bed. Whatever you do, pick a time and stick with it, okay? The when is important. The where is important. Where you do this reading is important, okay? Because... If you're doing it in a common area where people are constantly coming and going and asking you questions, your train of thought is going to be broken, and you're not really going to be able to um, immerse yourself in what you're reading. The how is very important. How are you reading it? Are you reading it on just a, a paper Bible? Or are you reading it um, digitally? If you're reading it on your phone, are you silencing all your notifications so you're not constantly being told what the weather today is and, and what the news report for today is? All these questions need to be considered, but the one that I think is probably the most important is to consider why. Why are you doing this? If you're doing this because I asked you to, you're doing it for the wrong reason. If you're doing it because of peer pressure, you're part of a church, you don't want to be found the only guy or the only girl not doing it, you're doing it for the wrong reason. If you're doing it because you want to increase your Bible knowledge, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. The goal of this exercise of getting to a place where you are diligently, regularly reading the Word of God is to increase your understanding of God's Word. Not just knowledge, but understanding. And we covered this a couple weeks ago, I kind of touched on it, but I want to dive deeper into it. Because the, the fact is, is if you aim for knowledge, there's a good chance you will miss understanding. But if you aim for understanding, you'll get the knowledge as a bonus. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that as you're going through the exercise of reading God's word regularly, you should be pausing frequently and trying to summarize what you read to see if you're actually understanding it. That's what I'm talking about. There should be a litmus test in in that little private, time of you reading God's Word to actually see if what you're doing is just, man, I got to get through it because I got something else I got to get to or something else I'd rather be doing. Or if you're taking the time to really consider that what you're reading, you're understanding. So what I'd like to do this morning is share with you kind of my routine that I go through. And we're not just going to talk about it for the Bible reading plan. What I'd like to do is put it into practice through Luke 4. So here's what I want to do. I'm not a big fan of like, hey, here's three things that'll make your life better. But here's three things that'll make your life better. (laughs) The first, all right, when you're reading through God's word, it is important in order to test whether you're in the understanding territory or just the knowledge territory. The first thing that I would encourage you to start doing is this. After you read a section of text, and it doesn't really matter. It could be at a chapter break, or it could be wherever the little heading is, wherever that break is. I want you to pause and try to summarize the story. What did you just read? And you can do it in your mind. You can do it out loud. It doesn't really matter. But going through the exercise of summarizing what you just read, that's the first step. Summarize the story. Here's the second step. Once you can summarize the story, can you zoom wider and now summarize the larger story? This is important. Because most people are comfortable with the idea of summarizing the story. Okay, let's, that's reading 101, I got that. But the next step of starting to summarize the larger story, what I'm talking about is become, becoming familiar with the recurring, recurring themes throughout the Bible. As you're reading through this story, and you're starting to realize, man, like this story about a barren woman, the, the, the theme of barren women, it's everywhere. And all of a sudden, this theme of barren women, it starts being associated with Israel. Now we've got not just a barren woman who, who can't produce life. Now we've got a whole nation who's been entrusted with God's word and they can't produce life. You see what I'm talking about? This theme of king that runs all throughout scripture. The idea that Israel's convinced, man, if if we just had our own king, things would be better. And then they got a king, even though they already had a king in God, and things didn't get better, they actually got worse. There was two entire books written about how bad it was to have kings. And that's actually what we're gonna study this year, which I'm really excited about, because there's nothing more fun than studying the book of Kings in an election year. We're gonna have a really good time. But as you go through this, can you not just summarize what you read, but can you summarize the larger story? And then the third step, and this is the one that we don't like doing, but the third step is can you summarize what you just read requires of you? Now this goes along with the memory verse that we've been studying this week, Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. And now Israel, What does the Lord your God require of you? So these are the three things that I think are important. As you're reading through your Bible, can you summarize the story you just read? Can you summarize the story you read in the context of the larger story? And can you summarize what it requires of you? And the goal is to get to a place where you can summarize it in your own words. Because if you're only reproducing and saying what you read in the words that you just read, you, you're probably in knowledge territory. But once you can hear something and start repeating it or summarizing it in your own words, now, now you're in understanding territory. So in order to put this to practice, to show you how this works, I'm going to use Luke 4 as our example for today. All right? So let's get into it. We're going to start in Luke chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 13, and then we'll pause. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. So the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. It said to him, To you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me And I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So he took him, Satan, the devil, took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of god throw yourself down from here for it is written he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone the devil is quoting psalm 91 right there jesus answered him it is said you shall not put the lord your god to the test and when the devil had ended every temptation he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pause. The first question we need to ask is, can we summarize the story? Well, the story is connected to the story at the end of chapter 3 when Jesus gets baptized. After he gets baptized, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness. But to get some understanding of this, I want to show you a map on where this probably took place, just so you can get your heads around this idea. So, we're going to start showing you a world map. We're gonna zoom in right here on this area in the Middle East, right in Israel. And I've highlighted a couple locations for you. This is not just for this section of the story, but for everything we're gonna cover in Luke 4 today. There's a couple regions you need to get familiar with if you're gonna understand the geography of Israel as you read the New Testament. After the Romans came in, they kind of split the country up. There was no Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom like there was during Kings. There's these regions, the south is Judea, it's named after Judah, and that is where the tribe of Judah had their land during the time of Joshua. So you've got the region of Judea, that's down here in the bottom, and in Judea is the capital of the country, Israel, Jerusalem. That's where most of, that's where the temple is located, that's where a lot of activity is happening when it comes to the religious practices. As you move a little bit farther north, you've got this middle region called Samaria, and then as you go all the way to the north, you've got the region called Galilee. Galilee is named Galilee because this is the Sea of Galilee, all right? So this whole region up here in Galilee is named after that body of water, and there is a town just kind of southwest, maybe a little under 20 miles from the top point of Galilee called Nazareth. That's where Jesus grew up. All right, so everybody in Nazareth knows who Jesus was as a young man, and everybody's familiar with Galilee, everyone's familiar with uh, this region up here, and this line that goes from the Sea of Galilee down here to the Dead Sea, this blue line, this is the Jordan River. Now, the story we just read takes place somewhere up here, up around this red star. That is the likely baptism location of Jesus. After that event, He's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. We don't know exactly where it is, but best guess, the wilderness is somewhere over here in this area. It'd be modern-day Jordan. So he's wandering around in these mountains. These, these, uh, it's, it's a desert, but there's tons of mountains, and it's very rocky. Uh, but he, this is the area he's wandering around for 40 days, okay? So let's summarize the story. He's in the wilderness in that location for 40 days, and he's wandering around. He hasn't eaten anything for 40 days. And the end of 40 days, Satan, the devil, same guy that tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, comes to Jesus, appears to him, and starts to tempt him. And the first thing he tempts him with is, prove who you are. If you say that you're the son of God, then do something about it. Prove to me that you are who you say you are. You're hungry? Turn that stone into bread. Now, it's important to understand that the early church understood this encounter and this story as something that actually literally happened. Okay, this isn't Aesop's fables. This isn't like a parable. This is an actual event. The actual entity, the devil, Satan, shows up to the man Jesus Christ in the wilderness and tempts him. And the first thing he says is, prove to me that you are who you say you are. And Jesus responds with Scripture. Scripture he responds to is from Deuteronomy 8.3. Man doesn't live on bread alone. Essentially, I'm I'm not gonna take your test. So the first temptation, Satan or Jesus, uh, responds to the temptation with Scripture. Then Satan responds with another temptation. Satan says, All right, I know what you're here for. I'm familiar with the prophecies all through the nation of Israel. I know that there's a coming king. I know that there's a descendant of David. I know that you're him, and I know that you're here to rule. He didn't understand exactly how it was going to happen, but he knew what Jesus was there for. And so he said, over these years, I have garnered all the support of all the nations. I'm kind of the big deal around here. When I got kicked down here to earth, I started rallying support, and I kind of run everything down here. I'm the prince of the power of the air. All of these kingdoms, you see, they're mine, and they're mine to hand over to whoever I want. So if you want the power you came here to get, whatever path you're supposed to be taking to get there, you can shortcut it if you want. You don't have to do whatever it is that you're going to need to do to convince Rome that you are who you say you are, and you're going to run the nations. All you got to do is just bow down and worship me and I'll give you what you're looking for. The temptation was essentially a shortcut. Worship me and you'll get whatever you want. And Jesus responds with Scripture, Deuteronomy 6.13. You're only supposed to worship the Lord. Not worship anybody else. No shortcuts. Now at this point, Satan... He's probably frustrated because he's being defeated with just pure Scripture. All right? So what Satan does is he uses Scripture, he distorts it in order to try and convince Jesus to sin. And this is what he says. He says, if you love Scripture so much, I know Scripture as well as you do, and Scripture says something in Psalm 91 about his angels guarding and protecting you. So, if you really trust Scripture so much, I'm going to put you at the topest point here in Jerusalem. I want you to throw yourself off and let the angels save you. If you really trust Scripture so much, prove it. Jump, trust God that He'll save you. That's what this temptation is all about manipulating God's word to fit your own purposes. And what does Jesus do? He answers the temptation with more scripture, Deuteronomy 6.16. Now, Satan has no victory so he flees and essentially that is the story summarized. Now the next question, once we've moved past the summary of the story, what is the summary of the larger story? How does this story fit into the larger story of scripture? Well, it mirrors two colossal failures of humanity. The first started in the Garden of Eden, when Satan came to Adam and Eve. Adam, the son of God, according to the genealogy that we just read in Luke chapter 3, he's God's created son here on earth, and Satan comes and tempts him, and Adam fails miserably. And the interesting thing is the way that he failed was because Satan came and distorted Scripture. Is that really what God said? Well, what he meant was this, I can reinterpret that command for you so that it suits your purposes and you can get what you want. So this event, you've you've got the larger story, Adam failing at a temptation from the devil. You've got Jesus here succeeding in a temptation from the devil, overcoming temptation. But then you've got another really pinnacle point, and it doesn't have to do with just one man, it has to do with an, an entire generation of mankind named Israel who when they, were flee, when they were set free from Egypt, they wandered into the wilderness and it was a trip that was only supposed to take a couple of days, but because they failed their temptation in the wilderness, they wandered for 40 years. Their tests were about food, about who you're going to worship, and are you going to test God or trust God? You find, you, you, this, is the, this is why we're doing this exercise. Because It's so easy to just stop at the first summarization. Can I summarize the story of what I just read? But now we've got to get into the understanding territory. What does this story have to do with the larger context? What this story has to do with the larger context is that Adam, God's son, failed. Israel, which was called God's son, in Deuteronomy one thirty, they failed, and now we've got God's son showing up, doing battle toe-to-toe with Satan himself, and he doesn't lose. But the question is, how does he not lose? This larger story of Jesus being a better Adam, a better Israel, a better human, conquering his adversary and doing it with Scripture, what does this require of us? It requires a mastery of Scripture. That's what it requires. The story is fascinating. The larger story is fascinating, but if, if you stop there and you don't move on to what it requires of you, you're eventually going to be spiritually malnourished because you're going to grow in knowledge and your head is going to be so big because of all the things that you know and that you understand, but it's never really going to trickle down to your heart. And you're going to become what C.S. Lewis calls in the abolition of man, an entire generation of men without chests. You've got all this knowledge in your brain, but you've got no heart. You don't understand virtue. You don't understand what scripture is demanding of you when it presents to you Jesus Christ in human flesh overcoming temptation with scripture. If you miss that, when temptation comes knocking at your door, you don't know how to fight it because you never learned to apply what you read. The truth is that Scripture is truth. It exposes lies. It equips us to resist the enemy. And if, one, you don't believe that there's an enemy, you're going to keep getting whipped by him. We've talked about this numerous times. There are two battlefields. There is the battlefield of the flesh, and then there is the spiritual realm battlefield. And the spiritual realm likes preying on your flesh. And if you're convinced that the only battlefield is your flesh… You're missing the other half of the war and you're gonna keep getting whipped and vice versa. If you're convinced that there is no issue with you and your eyes are always pointed outward at everything else and you see a demon behind every corner and, G- and, and, and Satan is the reason for everything wrong in the world but sin doesn't need to be accounted for, you're gonna be out of whack. There are two battlefields you have to be familiar with but both of them, the weapon is Scripture. When you say, well, well, what what about faith? No, no, no. Faith is a shield. What about salvation? That's your helmet. What about the gospel? Well, those are the shoes. The weapon is Scripture. And if you don't know it, you're running into battle without a sword. And where's the battle? The battle's all around you. The battle is everywhere. The battle is in church. The battle is out of church. The battle is in the car on the way to church. The battle is in the car on the way to work. The battle is at work. The battle is in the classroom. The battle is everywhere you look. And if you don't have your sword, when temptation comes knocking, you don't know how to defend yourself. And you're going to be a sucker. Now, let's continue with this. Luke chapter 4, pick up verse 14. It says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So he gathers together, kind of like on a church service, and someone stands up and reads some Scripture, and he stands up. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This is Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And he reads out loud, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed." to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today in scripture, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And he said, excuse me, they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, that's a city just north of Galilee, do here in your hometown of Nazareth as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth, I tell you, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon, that's outside of Israel, Gentile territory, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian, another Gentile. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. That's a fascinating contrast to what we see in verse 14 and 15. When we see Jesus return in the power of the spirit of Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in the synagogues and he was glorified by all. Interesting. So let's summarize the story. The story is after the wilderness, Jesus goes into Galilee. He crosses back over the Jordan River. He travels around the Sea of Galilee, the surrounding cities, and he's teaching in the synagogues. And in some of the cities, he was very successful. So successful that everywhere he went, people were glorifying him. But he went to a town near Galilee called Nazareth, his hometown. And in that hometown, he wasn't very successful. And this is where the story gets interesting. Because he goes into this synagogue and he's handed Isaiah's scroll and he turns to the place where it prophesies about him. This is a prophecy. That had been given 700 years before by the prophet Isaiah and now Jesus is here on the scene showing up in the synagogue fulfilling this prophecy live and he reads it and the moment he reads it everyone marvels because they know what this prophecy is the prophecy is the Spirit of the Lord is upon the Messiah when he shows up good stuff is going to happen People are going to be set free. Blind eyes are going to open. He's going to proclaim liberty to the captives. He's going to set people free. Oppressed people are going to be not oppressed anymore. It's going to be amazing. When Messiah shows up, it's going to be awesome. And the people are listening to him reading a scripture, and they're saying, yeah, I'm down for all of this awesome stuff Isaiah said is coming our way. I like the good blessing stuff. I like when the Bible talks to me about blessings and things that are going to come my way. In fact, I've been hearing about all the good stuff you've been doing in the other cities of Galilee all surrounding the region. And so everyone gets excited and they start marveling because Jesus is proclaiming good stuff, but that's not the only thing Jesus is proclaiming, is it? Jesus is proclaiming freedom, but not freedom on your terms. He's declaring salvation and blind eyes being opened and healings but not on your terms, not on your timetable, not the way that you would have prescribed it. And so when he starts declaring this, the congregation is like, yeah, I'm all for that. Let's have you do the things you did in Galilee here in Nazareth. And Jesus says, no doubt you're going to start asking, hey, physician, heal thyself. Hey, prophet, do what you did in Galilee here in Nazareth. But then Jesus starts interpreting the scripture. And what he says is, this stuff is going to happen, but not in this town. And the reason why it's not going to happen in this town is because what you want is the good stuff, but not me. What you're interested in is the blessings that come from the prophecy, the healings that you're hearing about up in Galilee, but you don't want the other part of the message, which is turn from your sin and repent. Stop doing things the way you used to do. Start following God's ways. You don't want to change, and therefore, you're not going to receive the blessing. And then we move into the larger story. The larger story here is that Nazareth is actually a picture of ancient Israel during the time of kings. Now, I'm going to go into the story too deep because we're going to get there later in the year. But during the time of the kings, Israel was guilty of wanting God's blessing wanting to be the chosen people, wanting to have fertile crops and rain coming down and wanting to have stockpiles of of gold and and overabundance of everything, but the one thing they didn't want was God. They want want His ways and they, they want His blessings, but they don't want the message. They don't want Him as King. And that's primarily the issue. You can't show up to church and expect that you're gonna get all the blessings that you hear about in the Bible with no obedience to the covenant. And so what Jesus does is he references the larger story and he says, Nazareth, this hometown of mine, it's just like ancient Israel in the time of Elijah and the time of Elisha. The whole nation was filled with non-believers. People of the covenant that were non-believers. And so what happened when Elijah came into town and he wants to uh, pour out blessings, when Elisha shows up and he wants to pour out blessings, there were tons of lepers to be blessed. There were tons of widows who needed help, but none of them were found in Israel because they didn't have the faith. They didn't actually want the covenant and to obey God. And so what God did was he sent the prophets outside of Israel and started ministering to the Gentiles. And Jesus said, that's the exact same thing that's gonna happen in this town. I know what you want, but you're not gonna get it. What's gonna happen to you is the same thing that happened in the time of Elijah and Elisha. The message is gonna land on the Gentiles and you're gonna be in the outside screaming and shouting because you want the blessing but not the blesser. You've got the prophet standing right before you telling you what is demanding of your life, but you will only take a third of it because you like the other two-thirds of doing things your own way. Now, what does this require of us? I'd say that it requires us to consider how are we going to receive the Scripture that we read. If the first half of Luke is an invitation to read Scripture If Jesus is constantly hammering Scripture, 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 you need to know Scripture because it's your weapon. you got to know it. When you get in there and you read it in your daily Bible reading, the next step here, what, what, what does this require us? It requires us to consider how are we going to respond to what we read. So the encouragement for the church today is read your word, but then consider how you're going to respond to it because we're given two different synagogues here, Right? In 14 and 15, we've got a synagogue who rejoices when they hear Jesus' message. And we've got another synagogue here in verse 28 that wants to kill Jesus when they hear his message. So the question we have to consider, what, what is required of us? We have to consider when we hear God's word and we start digesting it, digesting it? Will we feel the conviction of God's word? Will it bring us to our knees? Will it bring us joy like it's intended to, like the first synagogue? Or are we going to chase Jesus away because we love our lives and we love this world? And we like some of his message, but we don't love all of his message. We like our own words more than we love his words. We love the things of this world more than we love the things of his kingdom. We spend more time and money and affection on the things that were made with the hands of man rather than the demands of our own God. Let's continue, going to Luke 4 31. He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Man, nobody's preaching like this guy. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice. Wow, there's demons in the church. Can you even believe it? (laughs) Verse 34, ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Because I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, for they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Now let's pause right there. What's the story going on here? Jesus is continuing to teach in the synagogues around Galilee, and his teaching is stirring up demonic activity in the church. This isn't like out in the street. This is like during the service. Demonic activity. Demons don't want Jesus preaching what he's preaching, and so they start making a big deal. But what happens next? Jesus exercises authority over the spiritual realm. Shut up, demon, and get out of that man. Now, what's the larger story at work here? Now, this is interesting. We're going to venture into some strange territory here. But if you've been around our church for very long, this won't be too strange for you. There are two interpretations on what these unclean spirits are. One is rooted more in church tradition, and one is rooted more in Jewish tradition during the Second Temple period. I'm going to give you both. We talked about this idea uh, back in our 1 Samuel uh, message series in the week where I covered 1 Samuel 17 and 18, and also 2 Samuel 4 and 5. The modern church tradition is that what these unclean spirits, what these demons are, are fallen angels, all right? I have no issue with that. There's precedent in Scripture for Satan being kicked out of heaven there's precedent in the Scripture for a multitude of angels uh, following his lead and 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 being deceived, and those fallen angels are now classified as demons. But there's this other category that, if you go back into the Second Temple period, so everywhere from uh, when Israel returned from Babylon up to the point of Jesus, all of the Jews writing during that time they had another category. They believed that there were fallen angels; they were demons. But there was this other category of unclean spirit. And the unclean spirit was often referred to as Rephaim. It was the disembodied dead spirits of giants. Okay? Now some of you are like, what? All right, follow me. And we covered this before. All the way back in Genesis 6, we're told that there was an event that corrupted the entire earth angels, sons of God, divine beings, came down, took human wives, had children, and the offspring were not created in the image of God. They were created in the image of these fallen angels. They had a different name, a different category. They were called Nephilim, and they were giants. They were these huge, tall people, and they covered the earth. and We're told that they were on the earth before the flood, and they were on the earth after the flood. The flood wiped out the, the, the population, somehow they repopulated the earth afterwards and we're told in Joshua chapter 11 verse 21 that one of the first things that the tribes of Israel were supposed to do when they went into the promised land was kill all the giants. So somehow they showed back up, I won't get into all of that, but there are giants on the land and these giants are connected to the lineage of these angels having children with women. So these beings aren't classified as humans. They're only half human, and their spirits are different than humans. Biblically, when we as humans die, our spirit goes to one of two places. You go to heaven, or you go to hell. There's no in between, okay? There's no such thing. There's no biblical category for your uncle coming back in the evenings after he's passed away to tuck you in at night and say he loves you, or, or some little girl who died in a house and is now haunting the house. That's no category for that. That's demons, Okay? those are demons. They're masquerading as maybe people who have died, but their whole point is to sow deception so that you don't believe what God's clear word says. Now, the other category for unclean spirits, according to Second Temple Jewish writers, was that when these giants were killed, when they were, when they were killed, murdered, whatever killed, uh, in battle or, or however they were killed, their spirits they don't go to heaven or hell. They're cursed to wander this earth in spiritual form and haunt. This goes back to what we talked about in second Samuel 5:16. It's one of the reasons why the Canaanites and the Philistines wanted so badly to have these battles in the Valley of Rephaim because they're trying to channel these spirits into their idols because they think it's going to give them power. It doesn't. God is over all of them, but there is this other category for unclean spirits. It explains, if, you're, if you take the view of the second temple period, it explains why these spirits so desperately wanted a body again, and why they're always possessing everybody, because they're trying to get back to the way that they were, and their sole purpose is to do whatever they can to corrupt God's creation. Mankind was created in the image of God, the glory of God. But these beings, whether they be demons or these disembodied giant spirits, their goal is to corrupt mankind. Now this is interesting because what this does is it puts this story in a larger context. Now Jesus is not just wandering around preaching the gospel and and every now and then just dealing with a demon who's being annoying. What he's doing is he's bringing the entire kingdom of light to earth and displacing the darkness that has held its hold on this earth since creation. That's the larger story. That Jesus doesn't just have a power, uh, authority over the kingdom of darkness. What the kingdom that Jesus is bringing is displacing and overcoming and literally conquering the kingdom of darkness. In every corner that it wants to hide, In church, in the school system, in Hollywood, in government, in your house, in your phone, in all those little corners where you want the kingdom of darkness to keep hiding because you like darkness more than you like the light. And most people can't tell it because you show up to church and you look like you like the light, but there are corners of your life where you enjoy darkness i got bad news for you. When Jesus shows up and starts invading your life, there is no darkness that will be left when he starts walking. He is here to conquer everything. Now, the next step, what what, what does this require of us? I'd like to finish the story before we get to that because I think the second section summarizes what it requires of us, and that's how we'll close. Let's go to verse 38. says, he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. And Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf and she stood over, excuse me, he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose and she began to serve them. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had Any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You're the Son of God. And he rebuked them and would not let them speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought after him and came to him, and they would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to God, excuse me, the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So Jesus, here's the summary of the story, Jesus doesn't just have authority over the spiritual realm, but he has authority over the physical realm too. He's not just casting out demons, he's making all things that are wrong right. He casts this fever out of Peter's mother-in-law. He's healing multitudes. That's the story here. The larger story is that Jesus is fulfilling the 700 year old prophecy that he quoted back in verse 18. That's the larger story. Isaiah said 700 years before this event, hey, a guy is coming that's gonna do all these things. Jesus then stands up in a synagogue and says, hey guys, I'm that guy who's gonna do all these things. And then that guy goes and does all these things. That's the larger story in the context. That he's not just making this up as he goes along. This is fulfilling prophecy that has been going on for 100 years. He's proclaiming good news. He's setting, captive to the, the, setting the captives free. He's healing the stick, sick, restoring sight to the blind. He's teaching the good news and he's backing it up with evidence of signs and wonders. Now let's get to the last summarization. What does this require of us? What does it require of us to read in Scripture that Jesus has authority over the spiritual realm and the physical realm? And he's not just healing individual people, he's healing people in this room right now. Now, healing of physical ailments, but also healing you of the, of the real issue. See, some of you would say that, like, my real issue is this infirmity. And Jesus would say, that's not the real issue, my friend. The real issue is in here. And I am far more concerned with you being healed of that thing in here than that thing out here. In fact, I love you so much, I'll use that thing out here that you want healed, healing from to heal that thing in here. I'm not gonna heal you in the way that you want because that's gonna bring about the real healing. That's how much he loves you. That's the larger story. And I think that the same thing that happened to Peter's mother-in-law when Jesus healed her, verse 39, we're told that when Jesus healed her, she immediately rose and began to serve. I think that that's what's required of us. Let me summarize the requirements from Scripture in Luke 4. One, we have to digest Scripture daily. It is mandatory that right now, even today, you get on a steady diet of God's Word and you don't stop. You don't stop when it gets hard. If you thought Job was hard, wait till we go through Numbers. All right? It's not going to get easier. It's going to get harder. It's going to get harder to understand. And the first time you go through the Bible, you're going to understand maybe 30% of it. But next year when we start it over again, you're going to start getting a little bit more. And after five years of this, you're going to start really grasping it. And it's going to be life to you. It's going to be the bread that you eat. But you've got to put in the work. You can't quit when we first start. That's the first requirement. You've got to be familiar with Scripture. You've got to understand it. You've got to get on a steady diet. But once you read it, you have to respond to it appropriately. You can't respond to it with pride. You can't come to it assuming you already know what it's going to say, so you could skip that chapter this week, or or this doesn't apply to me. It applies to this other person. I wish this person would read this. No, stop being like the eye of Sauron that's always looking at everybody else. Look at yourself. Examine your own self. Let Scripture examine you. It's your free Lord of the Rings reference for today. <laughs> you've got to read Scripture. You have got to humbly respond to Scripture. But when you respond and He heals you because of what you behold, you've got to get up and you've got to serve others and proclaim this message. That's the takeaway. That's the summary of what is required of you. Get in the Word respond to it appropriately and then get up and go do something about it. Now here's the final thing and I'm going to close with this. I feel like it's really important especially for communicators but I think the church as a whole to get to a place where you start becoming more proficient in being able to summarize whatever it is that you've read or digested in one sentence. I went through the pastoral candidacy process with some pastors here and this is the one thing I told them. When you have finished writing your sermon, if you can't summarize it in one sentence, go back and try again. Because what you need is that when you sit down and you read God's word and you're going through it on a daily basis, you should be able to summarize everything you read in one sentence, fold that up in your pocket, put it right here and during the day when you're walking around and you're grabbing your keys, you're oh, you're reminded that one sentence sticks with you. So, if we're going to summarize Luke 4 in one sentence, here's my attempt at it. Behold your God and then tell everybody what you saw. The Word of God, John 1 tells us, that is Christ. He is the Word. So, when you're reading the Word, you're beholding Him. So the command in scripture to read scripture, to understand it, to respond humbly, that is in essence a command to behold your God, stare at him, become familiar with his attributes. Let him change you and then get up and go into the towns, into the city, into your classrooms and tell everyone you meet what you saw, amen? Amen, Amen. let's pray.